0: I don't know about you, but whenever I find myself feeling excessively angry at my political opponents, I like to ask myself, what would Jesus do? Then, since I can't hit them with a lightning bolt and fling them reeling into hell for all eternity, I try instead to understand where they're coming from and whether I can get them to go back there and stay there and never show their ugly faces anywhere near me ever again. So today, in an effort to build bridges of understanding between Democrats and decent human beings, I'd like to take a sympathetic look at what the left believes. According to the left, critical race theory is not racism, and anyone who thinks it is, is just a white devil helplessly acting out the imperialist oppression that flows through his bloodstream, carrying the essential whiteness that is just a social construct but is impossible to change. According to the left, Critical race theory is not being taught in schools and should continue to be taught in schools in every state despite the fact that minority children are falling far behind in math and reading. Math and reading are just white concepts created to stop black people from becoming educated in traditional African ways that are completely imaginary and have nothing to do with the real Africa where American black people haven't lived for more than 200 years. So they really need to learn math and reading instead of critical race theory, which is not being taught in schools and will continue to be. And what about transgenderism? According to the left, men and women are exactly the same, and some men even are women, and are therefore totally different from men, while being exactly the same, except for wearing skirts and pretending to be women who are very different. A person's identity, of course, is defined completely by their race and sexuality, because humans are totally physical beings and are therefore not at all defined by their physical being, but by a mystical inner soul that can identify as any race or gender it pleases. Thus, a human's completely physical existence is defined by his disembodied soul, which does not exist, because if it did exist, he'd have to believe in God and stop doing the immoral stuff he's doing, and morality is relative. Because what's immoral here is totally immoral in another country, like imaginary Africa and other places that don't exist, like the soul that totally defines us. Finally, it's very important that everyone receive free college, where they won't learn math and reading because that would be white, but will instead be taught critical race theory, which is not being taught. Therefore, everyone must also receive a guaranteed income because they're now unemployable because they can't do math or read because that would be white. And critical race theory, which is not racist, hates whiteness. The free college and guaranteed income will, of course, be paid for with money taken from billionaires who earned it building businesses that they will no longer build, because what's the point if you're going to take all their money, which they now no longer have anyway? I hope this little journey into the mind of the left will help you understand what Democrats are trying to accomplish so you can reach out across the aisle and stop them and maybe punch them in the testicles while you're at it just to make sure they get the point. That would also probably answer the question, what would Jesus do? Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a-biddy-zing. It's a wonderful day, hoorah, hooray, it makes me want to
1: sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray.
0: All right. We are back once again, laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. And if you would like to keep laughing until the Republic just collapses on top of you, please go on Apple podcasts and subscribe and give us a five-star review. It's incredibly helpful to us. Uh, so do it just just out of the goodness of your heart. Also, go on YouTube and subscribe to the Andrew Klavan YouTube channel. Don't do that out of the goodness of your heart, because if you ring that little bell, uh, you'll start to hear a little tingling in your ear, and that will probably last until you get care from a doctor. Uh, also, leave a comment, and if the comment is sufficiently ignorant, racist, sexist, and offensive, we will include it on today's show, because... That's who we are. Uh, today's comment comes from Ryan Hunter. He says, sometimes I wonder how it is that Clavin has such command over the English language. And then I remember that Clavin was actually there when English was invented. Then it makes sense. That's true. In fact, I actually worked on the language uh, with several scientists uh, who were inventing it at the time because Latin had just become, uh, you know, too too difficult to understand. So I am Finally, finally, in my house, and one of the things I am happiest to see there is my Helix mattress, because as you know, I do not sleep, but I do lie awake, and you want to be comfortable when you're lying awake. Even if you do sleep, a Helix mattress is the thing you want to sleep on, so go to Helix Sleep. Dot com slash and take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life, or in my case, the best lying awake. I took the quiz. I was matched to the Helix Midnight Lux, which is a medium-firm mattress designed for side sleepers or for side lying awake. Helix mattresses have a 10-year warranty. They're made right in America, and you get to try them out for 100 nights risk-free. They will even pick yours up for you if you don't like it. But you will. Right now, Helix is offering up to two hundred bucks off all mattress orders at HelixSleep.com/slash Clavin. Get up to two hundred dollars off at HelixSleep.com/slash Clavin. You too can lie awake and ask yourself, how do you spell Clavin? Clavin. So true. So today I'm going to talk about the uh, crisis of climate change. (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Uh, I'm going to talk about Cuba. But first, I want to talk about the fact that I have finally moved into my house. I am now no longer homeless after weeks and weeks of wandering lonely as a cloud. I now have a home. And I want to say, first of all, I want to the first thing I want to say is that if there were a Nobel Prize for homemakers, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the only profession that actually deserves a Nobel Prize my wife would not only win the first one, it would be named after her. It would just be called the, the Ellen Prats. Uh, she has done a great job putting this house together in record time. She had help uh, from some designers uh, who I won't name because I don't know if that would <laughs> damage their business being associated with me, but they were, they were terrific. But she really did a great job running these crews. And now, I want to talk for a minute about the idea of home, and especially in the idea of home in my life, because home has become more important to me as I grew older and came to terms with a lifelong wanderlust and what my wanderlust meant, what it meant in my life, and what it meant kind of philosophically. Because I talk about this in my memoir, *The Great Good Thing*. I was always very moved and very captured by the romantic American idea of the drifter. I actually wanted to be, a, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional drifter. I mean, this is something that is very deep in the American consciousness. It's the symbol of freedom that's connected to the idea of a wilderness, a place where you can wander off into open country and disappear and be completely completely yourself with no one there to bother you. And so I grew up with that idea very much in my mind. I mean, Huckleberry Finn, uh, who you remember at the end of the novel, he lights out into the territory, into the open countries because he's just such a free spirit that nothing can contain him. Uh, My mother used to call me Huckleberry Fine, which was the Jewish version of Huckleberry Finn because I just had that, that spirit of drifting in me. And there was all this kind of Uh, romantic music. I remember Ricky Nelson, who was a big rock star uh, when I was a little kid. He has a song called uh, Traveling Man. When I was working at a gas station to earn money to take my first of countless trips across country, which I did in my efforts to become a drifter, uh, I was working at a gas station 11 hours a day, six days a week. I think I was paid $2 an hour, which was a lot of money. And, um, for if you were working sixty-six hours a week, and I, re- there was a song called "So Far Away" by Carole King, and the song used to just break my heart. And because they played one of those top ten, uh, you know, radio stations that was constantly playing the same songs over and over again, I would hear "So Far Away" all day long, and it just made me yearn to be on the open road. It was another one of these vagabond anthems, and today, not not anymore, but for decades after that experience, whenever that song came on the radio, I would smell gasoline because gasoline is very much connected to memory. Uh, Anyway, the idea of wandering, of drifting, became very popular again in the 60s when I was growing up because that was when a generation was kind of yearning for that sense of freedom. They felt that they were constrained by 1950s uh, culture. Obviously, conservatives look back on that culture with nostalgia, but it was very uh, lockstep and very you know, kind of solidified. It was a, a solidified culture. And so people did feel oppressed by it. Women felt oppressed by it. Men felt oppressed by it. It was just kind of the idea of the man in the gray flannel suit. And there was no not a, not a lot of creativity. So a lot of the uh, road romance came back into fashion when I was a kid. And it really caught me up in it. Jack Kerouac and uh, his book On the Road became popular again. Uh, Easy Rider was another version of that. Uh, there was a show on that I just loved, a television show on it. It only lasted for a year. It was called Then Came Bronson, uh where a guy, he was a it was Michael Parks, who was a very James Dean-like actor, died a few years back. But he played a newspaper man whose friend killed himself, and so he got on a motorcycle and just took off into the territories like like Huckleberry Finn. And uh, this was the opening of the show, it was cut twenty-five. This was how the show opened every week. It was Bronson on his motorcycle in a traffic jam and they Work-a-day guy looks out the window and he sees him there.
1: Taking a trip? What's that? Taking a trip. Yeah. Where to? Oh, I don't know. Wherever I end up, I guess.
2: Well, I wish I was you. Really? Yeah. Well hang in there.
0: that show came on that show came on when i was 15 years old and i just I just carried my heart away and i spent years wandering around the country i slept in hobo camps i slept on the street i was chased by police i had many uh, romantic adventures a lot of a lot of fun to it and it was something that really just every time i would look at a, a kind of vista of hills. I just wanted to take off and travel over that next hill. And I've remained a vagabond most of my life. I moved my family uh, from the exurbs of New York to the city of New York, to the city of London, to Santa Barbara in California, to Hollywood. And now I've moved them once again, or what's left of my family, which is my wife, uh, back to the eastern seaboard. And yet, and yet, all of this time, uh, you know, I think what I've been trying to avoid You saw it there, and then came Bronson. It was the... The conflict between the free American spirit, he's going to take that motorcycle and just disappear, and the guy, the ad for Then Came Bronson was Then Came Bronson, the man you wish you were. And that guy, that workaday guy, stuck in traffic, has all the responsibilities, has the wife and the kids and the uh, you know maybe a church and the community, and he's hemmed in by his responsibilities. And the American spirit is always trying to reinvent itself and wants to take off. And I think I was trying to avoid getting locked into any way of life that would keep me from being the creative artist that I was. I always wanted to maintain my personality, my individualism. But over time, my sense that my core identity was more than individualism uh, began to increase. And when I started doing this show, which is now, I don't know, six years, seven years ago, when I first started doing the show, I would say I'm an individualist. And I remember about a year after I started doing the show, I was taking a walk in Oxford, England with my son, Spencer Clavin, no relation. And it was one of our kind of famous rambles when we would talk about philosophy and such. And I said to him, you know, this individualism doesn't work. It's not enough to say that you're an individualist. Because, in fact, we depend on one another. We depend on our mothers when we're born, on our fathers, on our families. We define one another through our relationships with brothers and sons and friends. That's who we are. A part of who we are is who we are in relationship to other people. And that balance between the community that can become restrictive, like the guy in the car with then came Bronson, and that yearning to be completely individualistic and completely free, which is very American, that tension between those two things is very much what Western civilization is about. If you go back to the Reformation, which is so much uh, the defining moment that creates the modern Western world, the Reformation is a, a way In a a way, this conflict between institutional Christianity and what was called the inner light Christianity, the individual interpretation Christianity. In many ways, Catholicism, which was Christianity in the West for a long time, taught individuality it taught people to honor the individual because jesus was an individual and each soul was infinitely worthwhile and so it taught people the value of individuality and there's a book called inventing the individual by a philosopher named larry sidentop really interesting book and what sidentop says is the catholic church invented individuality the the holiness the sacredness of the individual and that came back to bite them when the individual said oh well, well then why do we need priests to read the Bible for us? Why do we need a church to tell us what to believe? Why can't each one of us read the Gospels for ourselves and decide what they mean? And so the Catholic Church invented individuality and individuality came back and said, well, we now want to be free of the Catholic Church, and that's the tension that has continued in Western culture and continues to this day in our political differences. We have the leftists who want the state to take care of us all and say, everything you do affects so many people, so we have to control what you do. You have to wear a mask because I might get sick. You have to, you know, pay for health care because I have to pay for your health care if you go to the emergency room. Everything is this big uh, link. And then you have the right, which has this kind of, uh, at its core, has this individual. Individualism, which can become sort of selfishness, is the great virtue—the kind of Ayn Rand idea that if we're all just absolutely individualistic, then somehow that will raise all ships. And and you know, there's also. But it works in the reverse order, too. You know, obviously, either one of those can become oppressive. It can become oppressive if the state is running everything, but it can also become oppressive if nobody cares about one another and we're just about profit and my own good. And I just go forward thinking about myself, that Ayn Rand idea I've always told you is like a, just really a psychopathic idea at its base. And and so the, either one taken to an extreme can become insanity. And in fact, there's an insane right-wing sense of communitarianism where you have the sort of, uh, you know, nationalist blood and soil European uh, right-wingism where everybody has to be kind of in lockstep and fascist lockstep. And then you have the individualism that goes too far on the left where you say, oh, you know, I have a right to kill my baby because I don't want to be a mother, you know, or I have the right to declare myself a woman, even if it infringes on the rights of actual real women. And so anytime you take any of these things to extreme, you become crazy. You have to have that um, tension between individuality and your responsibility to the community. I land on the conservative side, which is more individualistic because power tends to coagulate and because people who have power want to hold on to it and don't want to give it up and just want more and more power. And so the the cry of the individual, the yearning of the individual always has a romantic power to it that really appeals to me. But I understand that obsessive individualism can lead to cruelty and selfishness and a, a society that can't maintain itself. So there's always room for There's no no solution to this tension. There's no solution to the tension between individualism and community. There's no system that will solve it. There's no absolute way of doing it. You have to have those values of agape love that are so central to Christianity where you say, yes, I am an individual, but part of my individualism is to love my neighbor as I love myself. I have to love myself, but I have to love my neighbor as I love myself. And that's where you have the balance worked out. The only thing is, the only thing I would add that keeps me on the conservative side is When you talk about charity, when you talk about the debt we owe to one another, the fact that we can't leave one another, we can't leave our neighbor lying in the gutter, we have to help him up uh, in whatever way we can, the only thing I have to say about that is it's based on reality, not on theory. Charity is not about how virtuous you are, it's about what you do for the person you're helping. That's why Jesus wanted us to be charitable in secret. He didn't want us to to be charitable in order to get credit for it. He wanted us to be charitable in order to actually help the person that we were striving to help. And that, that brings me to what's going on in Cuba. Now that I have a home to protect, I cannot wait to get my Ring security system in there. Wherever you are, Ring lets you know what is going on outdoors around your house. It is peace of mind anytime, knowing that your home is protected Now that I have a house, I will be able to keep an eye on every corner of it with Ring's easy to install indoor and outdoor cams. It's never been more important to be able to see who's there or what's happening around the house, inside or outside. And you can see it all on one simple app on your phone, no matter where you are. With Ring, your family and you will be able to keep an eye on your home if you're traveling, no matter where you are, even if you're in bed and you just want to see what's going on outside, you will never miss a visitor, never miss anything going on. Start protecting your home today with Ring Alarm. Go to ring.com slash to get your Ring Alarm security kit today. You can build the system that's right for your home and have it up and running in minutes. I can, too, now that I have a home. So go to ring.com slash That's ring.com slash Anyone comes to your house, wherever you are, say to them, how do you spell Claven? And if they know, call the police. The uprising we saw in Cuba, the mass demonstrations, the spontaneous demonstrations, and the fearless demonstrations in what is essentially a police state where you can vanish very easily, and people have vanished since those demonstrations took place, was unprecedented. In 60 years of communism, 60 years of brutal communism, 60 years of mass murdering uh, communism, this is the first time we've really seen this kind of rebellion. And, you know, people in Cuba live in intense fear. They infiltrate uh, any demonstration and make sure their leaders disappear. Um, so what happened? What happened? Well, first of all, they got Internet. So for about three years, they had some social media. So they got to uh, connect with one another. And, and then there was COVID-19 and things were going really badly. Why are they protesting? Why are they protesting communism? You know, the, the State Department tried to make it sound like, oh, they're just protesting the fact that their treatment for COVID-19 is not going well. But no, they were protesting the actual, revol- what they call the revolution. And we've talked about this before, that the constitutional limits that we have on government create the illusion that there's such a thing as the state that loves you, right? Because we have, have had constitutional limits on government, the people who go into government are restrained in their love of power. And that makes us think, think, gee, government is a good thing. So we can trust government to redistribute wealth. We can trust government to take care of our health care. We can trust government to do all those things, giving government more and more power. And then you find out that the state, this be- beneficent state, this generous state was always an illusion. In fact, all the state is is people with power. And you give them more power, they become more corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's what happened in Cuba. You know. They often point out, the people who like the left and the people who want to maintain this theory of communism, which is supposed to work, is supposed to make everything fair, they like to talk about the fact that Fidel Castro, at the end of the 50s, overthrew a brutal dictator, Batista. And that is true. I mean, Batista started out as an efficient a dictator, but an efficient dictator. Uh, then he basically went through a period where he left the country and went to Florida, came back to Cuba, and just was an absolute Tyrant, uh, and then, and he had taken over from a tyrant before him. They, they they like to say that the guy before him was a liberal, but he no, he was a mass murdering tyrant too. So they've just had one mass murderer after another, and Fidel Castro was just another one. He's kill he killed at least at least eleven thousand people, uh, just murdering them, taking over. He has been a thug from the beginning, and he always was. And the thing is, it, the thing the the way that communism usually rises up is that there's corruption or oppression. And the communists who take office are frequently motivated by a theory. And that theory makes them idealistic. And then when they get into power and they realize that their theory doesn't work, but they have now have all this power rather than abandon the theory, which has been the motivating factor of their life and say, oh, the theory doesn't work. Let's go back to reality. They just start to enjoy the power (laughs) and start to lock down on the people. And the nothing the left loves, Like a theory. They have this this old joke where the left says, yes, that will work in fact, but will it work in theory? And that is the thing communism may work in theory, socialism may work in theory, and that's why it's so popular in places where you don't have to prove yourself the academy, Hollywood, the news media, where you don't have to build things that work. You can just talk about how generous you are. They love that theory, it makes them feel generous. But once you have the power, it just doesn't work because the state is based on a lie. It's based on the lie of a benevolent state. So when Castro, Castro died, I guess about five years ago, the press could not let go of the fact that this guy was a murdering tyrant, that if you go to Cuba, the place looks like it's still the 1950s. They're driving these old cars. They, if, you, if you drive a cab, the police pull you over and take bribes from you. It is a, an entire place that runs on corruption and on oppression. And this is the way, this, listen to the way the news media treated the death of Fidel Castro.
3: What he's done in Cuba has been a success in the sense that Cuba has one of the highest literacy rates in the world. Uh, They have uh, doctors that they send, again, all over the world. By
2: then a declared socialist, he dramatically improved health care and literacy.
3: Many
0: saw positives, education and health care for
3: all, racial integration you see the medicine system they are very proud of you see athletes and think of how many cuban athletes have enriched the sports
1: in this country
0: Uh, i'm
3: quite certain that they're not celebrating his death in cuba and he brought health care and he got rid of batista and he made literacy a part of the cuban government even castro's critics praise his advances in health care and in education and he was the original revolutionary he was the man the people called the great revolutionary was considered even to this to this day the george washington of his country
0: Wow, I just, I just hope that I can murder enough people to get that kind of uh, you know reaction from the press when I die. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I have a big enough kill count uh, to make it into the hearts and minds of the press, but Fidel Castro certainly did. And you kept hearing that one refrain, the healthcare, the healthcare, so much, oh, the healthcare, the healthcare. Michael Moore made an entire film about this. I, I, Michael Moore, the make-believe communist who parks his limousine around the corner before walking into a building so no one will see how badly he treats the many, many servants he has from his millions and millions of dollars that he's made making communist movies. Michael Moore made an entire film, 2007, called Sicko, about how wonderful, wonderful the health care system was in Cuba. Here's just a little bit of that.
3: The Cuban people have free, universal health care. They become known around the world as having not only one of the best healthcare systems, but as being one of the most generous countries in providing doctors and medical equipment to third world countries. In the U.S., healthcare costs run nearly $7,000
1: per person, but in Cuba, they spend only $251, and yet the Cubans are able to have a lower infant mortality rate than the United
3: States, a longer average lifespan than the United States, they believe in preventive medicine, and it seems like there's a doctor on every block. Their only sin when it comes to health care seems to be
0: that they don't do it for a profit. <laughs> every word of that is false. So, I mean, think about this for a minute. If the healthcare is so great that every news media, every uh, news outlet was praising Fidel Castro for his healthcare, Michael Moore makes an entire movie about it. They take to the streets and suddenly the State Department is saying, well, it's because of COVID. Where's their great health care? Where's the great health care that was going to save everybody and all? The, and they just don't care about the profits. Here's, here's what happened. I will tell you what happened. Cuba is broke. It's not because they keep saying, well, it's because of the embargo. It's the American embargo. America does not embargo food and medicine. It sends the medicine. It sends them food and, of course, it also sends them dollars because people who, you know, the the number of Cuban-Americans, of people who have left Cuba and are now Americans, it's about a fifth of the number of people who live in Cuba. So it's about 2 million, say, Cuban-Americans and there's about 11 million Cubans. The few Cubans who live in America make more in the aggregate and they're not one of the highest earning minorities in America. They make more than the entire island of Cuba okay so their economy in Cuba stinks they are broke what do they do about being broke well they do train a lot of doctors and basically they human traffic these doctors and send them to other places take the money from them. They don't let the doctors make the money. They take it back and they feed it back into the regime. And when I say back into the regime, it's not into healthcare for the people. It's for the mansions and the women that all these tyrants always have. So they are using, they're essentially trafficking their doctors when they say they're, they're sending them they're sending them out in charity to these places. No, they are feeding the mouths of the dictators by sending these guys out and making doctors. When People in America, when Cubans in America or Cuban-Americans make money here and they send those dollars back to their family, you know what happens? The family gets the dollars, but then the government sets up stores that have much-needed items in them that only accept dollars. And so you have to go in and buy those with your dollars that you got from America. And where do those dollars go back into the economy to feed people and help it? No, of course not. They go back into the regime. They rule by terror. They always rule by terror. And what happened was they got the Internet three years ago and people started talking. These these rappers and artists and poets started sending around, uh, you know, pains to freedom, basically. And the rappers, one of the rappers had this thing, uh, fatherland, you know, uh, Fidel's motto was fatherland or death. But the rappers are saying, no more lies. My people demand freedom. No more doctrines. Let us no longer shout fatherland or death, but fatherland and life. Fatherland and life. You wonder why I talk about The culture all the time. You wonder why I talk about the arts and why they won't let constitutionalists get near Hollywood and why they won't let anybody who believes in freedom get near Hollywood or work in Hollywood. This is why. This is why. Because when you hear the artists, when the artists come, they touch your heart. They remind you of that yearning you have for freedom, that yearning you have uh, to be an individual and have your individuality count for something and mean something in the world. And they do not want that yearning to breathe free. So the people take to the streets, and they wave the American flag and they shout Libertad, and now they've all been shut down. They took away their internet. They basically are incommunicado. The entire island is incommunicado, but they're out there waving American flags and shouting Libertad. And Joe Biden, who is the make-believe president, uh, he made all the right comments. This is cut nine.
1: The Cuban people demanding their freedom from an authoritarian regime. And I don't think we've seen anything like this protest uh, in a long, long time, if, if quite frankly ever. Um, and the United States stands firmly with the people of Cuba as they assert their universal rights. And we call on the government. The government of Cuba to refrain from violence or attempts to silence the voice of the people of Cuba.
0: So he's saying the right things right there. But what is he doing? I mean, he's trying to pass trillions of dollars in spending that will make the government enormous. It will make government spending enormous and socialistic. I mean, he's going to say, oh, we're going to pay for your Um, your child, you know, you're going to get all this money if you have a child and we're going to take we're going to take care. There's going to be daycare where we can teach them that he's not he thinks he's a boy, but he's not really a boy. We can teach them critical race theory so he will hate his neighbor for being a different color or hate himself for being white. They will not let they simply will are not going to let Cubans escape from Cuba. Our southern border is unprotected. People are pouring in from South America and Mexico. People are just pouring in and they won't do anything about it. I mean, they sent Kamala Harris to, to look into it, look into the root causes. They want to find the root causes. How are they reacting to the uprising in Cuba? Don't come here. This is Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security. This is his message to the Cuban people.
3: Allow me to be clear. If you take to the sea... You will not come to the United States. The time is never right to attempt migration by sea. To those who risk their lives doing so, this risk is not worth taking. Again, I repeat, do not risk your life attempting to enter the United States illegally. You will not come to the United States.
0: What's the difference between a Mexican and a Cuban? They think the Mexicans will vote Democratic. That's the difference. They, that's the difference. They lost Florida because for one reason. was because the Cuban Americans who live down there are not going to vote for Democrats because they know socialism when they see it. The reaction on the left is a reaction to preserve the idea of communism, the theory of communism. When I say that charity is based on reality, I mean it's based on results. Your intentions don't matter a damn. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You ever think about that slogan? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, shouldn't it be paved with like flaming skulls or something like that? No, it's paved with good intentions because good intentions make you feel good. They parade your virtue, but they don't do anything for the people that you are supposedly trying to help. Listen to the the left cover up, cover up for the communist regime. Here's Reuters. They're very concerned. They say Cuban protests risk exacerbating COVID-19 spike. Did they worry about that when BLM was burning down Portland and Minneapolis? Did they worry about the COVID-19 spike? No, because actually, if you're a communist, you don't spread COVID-19. It's only when you protest communism that suddenly you spread COVID-19. It's like a mask. Communism is like a mask, you know, that protects you from spreading COVID-19. BLM can, Black Lives Matter can burn cities to the ground, can completely destroy businesses, destroy dreams, destroy lives, but they won't spread COVID because they are a Marxist organization. How do we know? Because here's what Black Lives Matter said about Cuba. Black Lives Matter, this is their statement, Black Lives Matter condemns the U.S. federal government's inhumane treatment of Cubans and urges it to immediately lift the economic embargo. It's all our fault that communism never works. Remember, BLM was started by two, what they described themselves as, was trained Marxists. And they do not want to let the theory go because the theory makes you virtuous, but the reality makes people slaves. It happens again and again and again. AOC, Alexandria occasional cortex. she put out a thing saying, oh we stand with the uh, we stand with the people of Cuba, but it's all America's fault as well. And just remember you know they're out there waving it's, it breaks your heart. They're out there waving the American flag and shouting Libertad but what are we saying about the American flag? A headline in the New York Times for July 4th was a 4th of July symbol of unity the flag may no longer unite. Jen Psaki was challenged on this about the flag. Here's cut 11.
1: Recently, the New York Times described the American flag as alienating the sun, But we've seen um, these Cuban protesters uh, flying the American flag as a symbol for freedom. We saw it in Hong Kong as well. Um, so does the administration support international protesters flying the American flag? And what message do you have to Americans who are wary of flying it here in the U.S.? Well, I would say first, uh, the the president certainly values and respects uh, the uh, the uh, symbol symbol of the American flag. Uh, he's someone who uh, certainly uh, waves it outside of his uh, house or ha- does in Delaware and and other places where he's lived uh, throughout his time. Uh, but he also believes that people have the right to peaceful protests, and he thinks both can be true.
0: <laughs> here's here's what Joe Biden with his American flag what's left of Joe Biden anyway. Here's what Joe Biden is saying about America. In America, in many states, they're trying to secure elections by having people show ID, by having people not collect other people's votes. Just basic, basic stuff. This is what he says about it. Cut 13.
1: This year alone, 17 states have enacted, not just proposed, but enacted, 28 new laws to make it harder for Americans to vote. Not to mention, and catch this, nearly... 400 additional bills Republican members of the state legislatures are trying to pass. The 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting.
0: Yeah, it's 21st century Jim Crow. Why why would he fly the American flag? I wouldn't. I wouldn't if I thought this country was riddled with Jim Crow, if I thought this was the greatest crisis in the world since the Civil War, which he also said. The U.S. State Department has invited U.N. experts who investigate racism and minority issues to conduct an official visit to the United States, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has said. Blinken says this is. Also, uh, he's speaking for Winken and Nod here. Winken, Blinken, and Nod say responsible nations must not shrink from scrutiny of their human rights accord. Rather, they should acknowledge it with the intent to improve. The Cubans are waving the American flag, but not the Americans, not these Americans, not these leftist Americans. They are the regime They are the Cuban regime. I know they're not mass murdering. I'm not accusing them of that. And I know that they're not a brutal communist regime, but they are a communist regime. They are socialists. And it's the same thing. The illusion that the state is going to take care of you is an illusion that lasts just until the state has the power to stomp on you. And it will. It always does. It always has. Why should it be any different? You know, there's an old Irving Berlin song. It's in, it's in a Fred Astaire and Bing Crosby movie that ends, I'll see you in CUBA. And that's the way I feel about the Democrats. We see you in CUBA. We know why you're standing up for that regime. We know who you are. We see you in CUBA. If you are looking for parts for your car, And if you're also looking for love at the same time, I can answer both questions for you. You Just got to say rockauto.com. Women love the sound of that because it means you are smart enough not to let your car just sit there in the driveway when it needs a part, not to walk down to the car parts store and talk to some clown who doesn't know any more than you do. When you say rockauto.com, it means you are smart enough to go online your own computer and look at Rock Auto's unique catalog which is remarkably easy to navigate. It has a great selection of car and car body parts that you can order online and get great prices. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. And when they ask you, how did you hear about us? Say, Claven in that same tone of voice. Oh man, that'll drive the girls insane. That way they'll know we sent you. They'll know we sent you just by the way you talk, just by the fact that when you go online, you say rockauto.com. So they've fallen, the left has fallen into this kind of hilarious little cycle because we see them, because we see who they are, and because Joe Biden is just a kind of moderate face they have put on this leftist program that they have, and because we see that too, the leftists speak up, they get caught. Then they say that they didn't say what they said, and then they silence anyone who opposes them. This is a cycle they go through again and again. They say, we're going to defund the police and say, you can't do that. We didn't say we were going to defund the police. The Republicans said that. But yes, you did. Shut up. It goes again and again and again. Listen, here's James Clyburn, right? All they want to do is make sure that people can identify themselves. All the Republicans want to do is make sure that people identify themselves when they go to vote, that they can't that they want to protect against fraud. So James Clyburn. So people said, you know, most people of all races, most people think, yes, of course, you should identify yourself. So James Clyburn, who's the majority whip, who still has a bit of a sense of reality left. He's the guy who engineered Biden's victory because he realized nobody was going to vote for Elizabeth Warren. Nobody was going to vote for the radicals like Kamala Harris. So he's the guy who engineered marshalling the black vote to boost up Biden. So at least people would have a moderate face to vote for. And he says, no, 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 we don't want we we have nothing against uh, voter IDs. Cut for.
2: There's not a single time that I've ever voted in my entire life Now I'm going to be 81 years old next week. There's not a single time that I voted when I did not ID myself. What I spoke about was allowing an ID, a picture ID of a hunter's license to be good, but of a student activity card to be no good. That's the kind of voter ID law that I'm talking about that's unfair. I've said that all of my life. I don't know why you guys keep misrepresenting what I said. I have never said you should not have voter ID. When I got my voter registration card, I keep it in my wallet. And when I go to vote, I presented that every time. And I say to them, I am Jim Clyburn, this is my ID, and I want to vote. I've always had voter ID. And that's why the representative earlier told us no Democrat has ever been against voter ID.
1: No
0: Democrat has ever been against voter ID. First they say it, no voter ID. Then they tell you they didn't say it. Here's Kamala Harris when she was asked about voter ID. What's wrong with voter ID? Cut seven.
2: In some people's mind, that means, well, you're going to have to um, Xerox or, or, or photocopy your ID to send it in to prove you are who you are. Well, there are a whole lot of people, especially people who live in rural communities, who don't. There's no Kinkos. There's no Office Max near them. People have to understand that when we're talking about voter ID laws, be clear about who you have in mind and what would be required of them to prove who they are. <laughs> I Not
0: mean, sound like she's against voter ID. Shut up. Shut up. No. <laughs> It's the cycle. The same thing. They say it. We protest. They say they didn't say it. And then they shut you up. They take you off Facebook. They take you off Twitter. They do whatever they have to do to silence the truth. I mean, it's the same thing with it's the same thing with crime. They defund the police in Oakland. They they didn't they said they were going to defund the police. And then they they cut the budget a little bit. They redirected funds. Of course, there's a criminal explosion. I mean, the whole thing this is happening in L.A., too, when you have uh, DA's you have these George Soros backed liberal DA's who will not prosecute laws who won't institute bail who just arrest people say well, don't don't murder anybody anymore and, and be gone with you my fine friend you know you have all these murders so in in Oakland the black people who are Frequently, the victims of these high crimes go out to protest. They go out to protest the fact that their people are being killed. Seventy percent of black people think the crime is a crisis in the country. White Antifa thugs show up and shout them down. Here's a little bit of that video, 27.
1: You don't have a right to be here! Now when black children
2: are dying in the street every day... Are
1: the police. The police. Yeah. No. The police. That's, wait a, wait a, lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. There are not hundreds of hundred people here. dead as the, no. as the police this year. There are in this
3: country.
1: You can make a about. list of thousands of people you go back in history. we talk talking about right now. What do you have against safety in open? What do you have against stopping the violence? Why do you have why are you trying to disrupt something that's trying to be positive? Why do you have to be, you, you're disrupting something that's positive? We're trying to save our people. We're trying to save our people. You are not our people. Get the
0: f*** out. <gasps> I mean, I shouldn't, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I'm, I'm laughing because it's so absurd. It's so incredibly absurd. First, they say defund the police. Then they say Republicans said to defund the police, not us. Then when the consequences show up and people say, hey, you know, our people are dying here. Our people are dying. and Tifa shows up to shut them down and silence them and shout them down. What, what, what does it mean? I mean, how can anybody even put in their heads the fact that white men in masks show up into a black neighborhood to silence them when they are mourning their dead and protesting the rise in crime? And that's Antifa. It's kind of just like, you know, what did, what did they say it over at NPR? They said, oh, it's just like when the guys, the Antifa people invaded Normandy to fight the fascists there. It's kind of like that, except completely the opposite. Un- unbelievable. And they always say it's just the messaging. I love it. It's just the messaging. It's not, it's not the actual fact of what they're doing. It's not the actual socialism. It's not the actual Antifa antipathy toward the police. It's not the actual racism that's involved in CRT. Here's the old Clinton hand, James Carville, saying, oh, these people, it's the language. They're all into the language. Cut three.
3: The overwhelming number of Democrats, most important constituents in our party, are blacks and suburban women. They're not into this. All right? And, and, and you know, again, we're seeing it time and time again. We're letting a, a, a noisy wing of our party define the rest of us. And my point is, we can't do that. I think these people are all kind of nice people. I think they're very naive, and they're all into language and identity, and that that that's all right. They're not storming the capital, but they're not winning elections.
0: <laughs> it's all about winning elections. You know, it's the same with critical race theory. They come out with this incredibly hateful, incredibly racist idea, this critical race theory, and they're teaching it in schools and they're teaching it in K through 12 and they're insisting on teaching it. And the parents, the parents start to show up and protest. And the news media says, "Uh, no, 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 that didn't happen at all. This, uh, This is from Media Research Center. They put together this montage, 23.
1: State after state, Fox News and Republicans, conservatives have whipped up a moral panic about so-called critical race theory. This is just the latest outrage device over at Fox, is it not? In a bad
0: faith effort by Republicans to make critical race theory a wedge issue. By the
1: way, critical race theory is enormously useful. It's a graduate level construct. It's not taught in K through 12. And again, it is not being taught in grade schools.
2: No one is teaching critical race theory K through 12.
1: Just
0: to be clear, can you just repeat it? It is a law school te- What is critical race theory?
1: What is critical race theory? I suspect it's not as major an issue as it, we've made it out to be in the media.
0: And here's a montage again from Media Research Center of teachers, great school teachers talking about critical race theory, cut 24.
1: Racism is systematic. So it's impossible to be systematically racist to white people in an American society. Teaching that systemic racism exists isn't in itself a racist practice that is the first step toward healing which this country desperately needs i am
2: part of the equity and racial justice team at my school district and have been mentoring students of color who have been leading these changes in our district they have implemented new curriculum that is unwhitewashed these
1: children's quote-unquote history books are so problematic When kids learn about the American Revolution, we learned about one black man on the front of the book and everybody else in here is white. Even though I'm a kindergarten teacher, I am very active in education reform. In honor of the anniversary of George Floyd's death, let's have a hot take on education. Let's talk about how schools marginalize African-American students. There is going to be a right side of history and a wrong side of history. When you stay out of it, you're on the wrong side.
0: (laughs) Say it, deny you say it, and shut up anybody who says you're still saying it, you know, left and I don't divide politics anymore between left and right. I divide it between friends of the founding and enemies of the founding. If you're a friend of the founding, if you believe in limited government, if you believe in the sacred right of the individual to speak freely, to defend himself, uh, to be a full, complete, free, uh, free individual. I think there's lots of compromises that could be made on people on the left and right of those uh, of the of the, that system. Uh, the people who say, I want to be a total individual. I want to be completely individualistic. And the people who say, no, you have a debt to the community. There, there is a conversation to be had there. You know, some, You know, sometimes people on the right say, well, there should only be private charity. That works if you live in a small community where everybody goes to the same church or everybody has the same general beliefs. Maybe everybody trusts each other, likes each other. But in an America, a multi-ethnic America, where there are so many different kinds of people, so many people who distrust each other, who don't even know one another, who don't even understand how people how each other lives. I I could see where there has to be some kind of government system for keeping people, uh, you know, from falling into the gutter, from disappearing off the grid. I I understand that. That is as conversation you can have. But it's all about reality. It is all about what really helps. What really helps is giving people hand up to get them back into the workforce, not the kind of uh, great society system that basically uh, inculcates dependency and breaks apart families and is the reason is the reason we have so much dysfunction, not just in, in black communities, but in all poor communities that live off the dole. Listen, there's a tension in America and in Western civilization between the individual and society. That tension is what makes us who we are. But these are not people on the left who are actually trying to resolve that tension in a creative way. These are people who just desperately want all the power in their corner so they can crush the individual spirit that has made this country what it is and has made this country so incredibly great. I spend a lot of time in a chair. I work in a chair. At a desk and if you want a great chair you want the x-chair the x-chair can give you a massage while you're sitting at your desk it can warm your back on cold mornings it can cool you off on hot days Lmax temperature regulation will take your seating comfort to a whole new level patent pending Lmax allows you to experience cooling heat and massage in your lower back XChair's patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL support was already best in class with incredible responsive low back support. XChair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to XChairClaven.com right now. That's the letter X, ChairClaven.com, or call one 844 for X chair X Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairclaven.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel Blade casters. XChairClaven.com. And I'm, you're saying you can probably spell X. You might be able to spell Chair, but Claven, it is K-L-A-V-A-N. V-A-N, <laughs> there are no easy I just make it look easy. So let's talk about Superman's sex life, because I actually think it's an important topic and it tells us a lot about superhero movies. You know, T.S. Eliot, the great American poet, had a wonderful line where he said, the great poet in writing himself writes his time. And I think that that is true, that great works like Hamlet not only show you something about the moment that Shakespeare is living in, and they show you so much about the moment that in some ways they predict the future. And I've talked about that in the past. But I think that art overall, the culture overall, is always speaking to us about its moment and the moment that we're living in. And in speaking about the moment, it's also speaking about the future. Because if you really understand the moment, you can kind of see where things are going. And I think that's true of great work, but I also think it's true of general work. In other words, if you take the culture as a whole and you're not looking for any works of genius, you take the culture as a whole, you start to see what people are thinking about. The rise of superhero movies is part of the rise of fantasy and science fiction. Obviously, it is a kind of fantasy and a kind of science fiction too. And that came along with the rise in technology. When I was a kid, science fiction was a secondary genre. The big genres were crime stories, detective stories, westerns, War movies, all of them were in some sense about the past. I mean, the detective stories about reassembling the past, obviously Western movies and war movies are about things that happened in the past. And even monster movies back in the day, and I was a big, as a little kid, I was a big monster movie fan. The monsters were very human and they were also in some ways about the past. Monsters like the mummy came from the past. Dracula came from the past. Superheroes, I think, represent an inner sense that as technology advanced, I mean, there were superheroes then, but it only became a major, major genre. As technology advanced, we started to have this sense that the human, human beings were going to become more than human beings. They were going to be welded te- to technology. They were going to have things inserted in their brain to make them smarter, stronger, faster. Uh, they would live longer. Uh, They would have limb replacements. They might even become something like Immortal. And I think superheroes are so popular because they are a human idea, a human idea of what the human future might look like. And I hate these movies. I've always talked about how, how much I dislike them. What is wrong with them? Why do I hate these movies? And the reason I hate them is I watch them. And no matter how they try to be serious, no matter how they try to address serious issues, serious ethical issues, they don't address the central human issues of sex and death, what used to be called eros and thanatos. It's not just having sex and dying. It is about the idea of eros, of the erotic, and mortality, in human life, and those two things go together. Sex and death go together, because if you're an amoeba, you just split, and you are immortal. Two amoebas are the same as one amoeba. It doesn't matter, but as people become, as organisms become more complex, they have to use sex to reproduce, and as they do that, then they, the personal uh, I, dies, and your child becomes your bid into the future of the world. So if you get rid of death, sex becomes unnecessary and meaningless. And And yet the problems of death, of course, are what science has been trying to solve all along. And in doing so, in some ways, they also solve sex. They get rid of sex. Superman, if you look at him, is super, but he's also kind of impotent. He's also a sexless creature. Uh, There was a famous essay uh, by Larry Niven, who a very famous science fiction writer, uh, back in the 70s, he wrote an essay called Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex. And it began... He's faster than a speeding bullet. He's more powerful than a locomotive. He's able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Why can't he get a girl? He says at the ripe old age of 31, Kal-El, alias Superman, alias Clark Kent, is still unmarried. Almost certainly, he's still a a virgin. He talks about why this is. He says, What arouses Kal-El's mating urge? Did Kryptonian women carry some subtle mating cue at appropriate times of the year? Whatever it was, Lois Lane doesn't have it. We may speculate that she smells wrong, less like a Kryptonian woman, more like a terrestrial monkey. He He says there are other problems. Electroencephalograms taken of men and women during sexual intercourse show that orgasm resembles a kind of pleasurable epileptic attack. One loses control over one's muscles. Superman has been known to leave his fingerprints in steel and in hardened concrete. What would he do to the woman in his arms during what amounts to an epileptic fit? And he goes on, he says, consider. (laughs) The driving urge between a man and woman, the monomaniacal urge to achieve greater and greater penetration. Remember also that we are dealing with Kryptonian muscles. Superman would literally crush Lois Lane's body in his arms while simultaneously ripping her open from crotch to center. He goes on and on with this. He says he'd blast the top of her head off. There was a hint of this, you know, back in the uh, 19, end of 1970s, 1980s Superman movies with Christopher Reeve. Uh, there was Superman 3 was a real bomb and people hated it and one of the reasons they hated it was there was a scene where Superman wants to have sex with and essentially marry Lois Lane and he has to consult in a very Freudian sequence he consults this AI creation of his mother and he says what do I have to do in order to be able to have a sexual relationship with Lois Lane and here's what mom tells him from Superman 3
1: Your father and
0: I try to anticipate your every question, Callow This is the one we hoped you would not
1: ask. But I have to. Because... She's everything I want in life.
2: And she... The one you have chosen... She feels as much for you?
3: Yes. Then if this is
2: what you wish... If you intend to live your life with a mortal... You must live
1: as a mortal. You must become one of them. This crystal chamber has harnessed the rays of the red sun
0: of Krypton. Once exposed to these rays, all your great powers
2: on Earth will disappear forever. But consider, once it is done, there is no return. You will become an ordinary man. You will feel like an ordinary man. You can be hurt like an
3: ordinary man.
0: You know, because sex and death go together, if you're immortal, sex becomes meaningless and essentially useless. So if you want to have a truly sexual relationship, you have to accept death. And that's what she's saying to him. You have to become immortal. Immortal. And there's always been something sexless about superheroes. They wear these tight costumes that emphasize their manly physique and their womanly physique. But how do you get out of those <laughs> costumes. How do you undress? I always look at them and think, boy, you know, it'd be really difficult to actually uh, seduce this person when she's wearing this one-piece leather suit, probably made out of some indestructible material. There's always been, because of this, there's always been something infantile about the superhero imagination. It is really interesting to me. Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel were the co-creators of Superman. And Schuster was one of the artists. He had this secret obsession. They wrote a book about it uh, called Secret Identity, but he was into s and and he was into women, dominant women. Uh, here's a picture, if you're watching, here's a picture, one of the pictures he drew. Dominant women uh, basically whipping and, bond, and you know, using bondage on and tormenting men. And the thing about, I've talked about fetishism before. The thing about fetishism is not a question of being good or evil, but it freezes you in childhood trauma. Fetish comes from childhood trauma, and it freezes you in that moment of trauma and doesn't let you develop into a full, mature sexual relationship. And what's interesting, fascinating to me is not only the most famous male superhero was created in part by an S&M guy, but so was the most famous female superhero heroine, uh, Wonder Woman, with her rope that she ties people up with. She was invented by a guy named William Marston, who was a professor who had a relationship with two women at once, and they were very into the same thing. Uh, Bondage, whipping, spanking, female dominance— uh, there's a, there was a movie made about them called Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, and here's the scene where Marston explains to these two women his idea for Wonder Woman, and it's a comical scene because he's basically explaining his fetishistic imagination. Here it is.
1: A comic book, Bill? Well, it's perfect. I'm going to inject my ideas right into the thumping heart of America. I mean, I'll get a real artist to draw it properly.
2: She's an Amazon princess that lives on an island of all women.
1: Paradise Island.
2: And a man crash lands on the island.
1: Uh, yeah, Steve Trevor the Spy.
0: And she wears a burlesque outfit.
1: Well, it's athletic. And silver bracelets. They deflect bullets.
2: And all her friends and helpers are sorority girls who have spanking parties and everybody fights Nazis and rides in an invisible plane. Yes.
0: What? Bill, we love you, truly. <laughs> but
2: nobody, and I say this with all the compassion and truth in my heart, nobody will ever publish this.
0: Wonder Woman is essentially the fantasy of a guy who fantasized about dominant women, <laughs> tying people up and beating them, tying men up and beating them. And what's fascinating is when they made the Gail Gadot film, the Wonder Woman film, which was a really entertaining movie, a lot of women, a lot of uh, female movie critics said they cried when Wonder Woman did her heroic, uh, dominant actions when she fought and won that battle in World War One. Uh, Meredith Warner in the LA Times said she cried when she saw this. This is what she needed. So, in other words, this, this was a, a, an example of women's empowerment. And what's fascinating to me about this is essentially the idea, the feminist idea of women's empowerment, is a sexual fantasy of a man, (laughs) man's fantasy of the all-powerful woman. And it makes perfect sense that the same imagination that imagines an all-powerful woman imagines himself to be an all-powerful man. In other words, Superman and Wonder Woman are part of that same fetishistic imagination. They really are. And and again, it's not a question of good or bad. It's just a question of being infantile. Here's Here's the thing. The Science fiction is said to begin with Mary Shelley. And Mary Shelley, of course, is the teen, was the teenage girl who invented Frankenstein. And Frankenstein is frequently said to be a man who tries to be God by, by inventing life. And in fact, that's kind of in the movie. If you see the, the famous scene where Frankenstein first comes to life, can you play that? Look, it's
1: movie. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. it's alive. it's alive. it's alive. In the name of God, now I know what it feels
0: like to be God. See, he says, I know what it's like to be God. And Mary Shelley herself said it was a man who essentially was playing God. But he's not playing God. He's making life out of things that are already there, which is what men do already. What he's playing is he's playing a woman. He's bringing life into the world without. A woman. And I really do believe that that is part of the fantasy, the feminist fantasy of equality. Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was ruling, when she was actually dissenting against a decision that she thought limited abortion rights, said that in order for women to be equal, to realize their full potential, that is intimately connected with their ability to control their reproductive lives. In other words, they have to be able to kill their babies in order to be equal with men. They have to stop being women in order to be equal with men. They are accepting an idea of strength, an idea of equality that comes from that infantile mind, that the idea of female empowerment is is essentially the idea of becoming a male. And that a woman's equality is dependent on her not being a woman. The thing is, this is what I was talking about before, about being interdependent, about being defined by our relationship with other people, about being wives and husbands, brothers and and, uh, children and neighbors, that part of the relationship between men and women is part of what a man is and part of what a woman is, is defined by their relationship to one another. And what What is at the center of that relationship is the fact that women have children and having children, they become infinitely valuable. But infinitely vulnerable. When a woman is pregnant, obviously she has got to be protected. And the the fact that her offspring are the offspring of the world, is the future of the human race, makes her infinitely valuable. In protecting a woman, a man puts himself at at risk. And what superheroes do is they eliminate all that. They eliminate since they're virtually immortal. They eliminate the need for sexuality and reproduction at all, since they are invulnerable, they are not taking a man is not taking any risk in defending a woman. And since the woman is just as strong as he is, she doesn't need to be protected. They are essentially getting rid of the gendered embodiment of humankind. It is an imagination of the future without human beings. We are sacrificing our human being, our humanity to get rid of gender, to get rid of inequality, to get rid of death. And the thing is, I'm not sure that's going to look as good as people think it does. You know, right now, we saw how people reacted to the flu, to the Chinese flu. If you can live forever, you won't live forever. You'll still be uh, subject to accident. You can't live more than 800 years without the chance of having a fatal accident. How frightened will we be then when you go outdoors, you're risking 800 years of life? It may not look as beautiful as we think it will. It is interesting to me, it is interesting to me that the other version of human perfection and the human future, which is the Gospels, begins with God choosing a mother for himself. Uh, God doesn't have to do that. If God had wanted to become incarnate, he could have snapped his godlike fingers and simply become a man, but he doesn't. He, in fact, chooses a mother for himself because he knows that mothers are the central fact of humanity, the central uh, origin of humanity, the origin story of humanity is motherhood. The dependency that we experience in humanity teaches us gratitude and teaches us generosity. It teaches us our humanity. It is an interesting thing to me that the what, what human beings imagine for their future, for their best future, is an inhuman future. But what God imagines for us is a gendered, embodied future where we become more and more human, not less and less. All right, we got a terrific guest coming up. But first, Let's talk about Candace Owens, because if there is one woman who is not afraid to speak her mind, it is Candace. And now she has an entire show where she does just that right here at The Daily Wire. It's called, get this. Candace, and every episode features her fearless brand of political commentary and in-depth interviews with interesting guests. Her latest episode, Cuba Communism and the Democratic Death Cult, is available right now on demand for Daily Wire members. If you haven't subscribed yet, get 25% off a new membership with code Candice at dailywire.com slash subscribe. And while we're talking about the Daily Wire, let us talk about Benjamin Shapiro. You know, Nick Fuentes was just put on the no-fly list by the government for reasons they refuse to explain. In plain sight, our left-dominated institutions are weaponizing their authority, sharpening their blades, and cutting into the rights of dissidents to operate in society. That's why there's no better time to learn about what authoritarianism looks like, why it happens, and how to stop it. It may sound like a tall order, but Ben Shapiro explains it all in his new book, The Authoritarian Moment. In it, he helps people understand as much as they can about how we reach this point and how we can all begin to fight back. The Authoritarian Moment is the book you need at this moment, and Ben will be doing a live signing of the book on July 27th. So if you want to pre-order your signed copy and ask him some questions, head to premiercollectibles.com moment. If you pre-order a copy, don't forget to type whatever your burning question may be into the prompter when you check out. And seriously, unless you want to live under an authoritarian regime intent on decreasing your freedom and increasing their power, it's time to start reading up and learning how to fight back. So as you know, we always like to bring on a guest to try and elevate the program, uh, bring a little bit of intelligence and, uh, you know, uh, insight into the show. And today we really hit the jackpot. We have Larry Elder. I hardly need to introduce him, but you know, he's a nationally syndicated radio host. He has the Larry Elder Show. He's a best-selling author uh, and a terrific guy. And he has just recently announced his candidacy for governor of California. Larry, it is good to see you again. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing great, Drew. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So, you are a massively successful guy. You could be bathing like Scrooge McDuck in your gold coins and <laughs> just like living the life. Why do you need this aggravation of running for can- the 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 governorship of California?
3: You know, Andrew, I think this is a, this is an intervention. This is damage <laughs> control. Uh, honestly, this, this is the mission of mercy. Uh, this state is almost ungovernable. That's why for the first time in our nation's history, we've had a net migration of Native Californians out of the state. There's a magazine called CEO Magazine. It's been around 17 years. Uh, and based upon things like taxes and spending, unfunded pension liability, and the degree to which the state is business friendly, California has been rated the worst state in which to do business for all 17 years of this magazine's existence. And one of the big issues, of course, is rising crime. We have uh, rising homelessness. We have declining school standards. And we have an arrogant governor who imposed the most dramatic, the most severe lockdowns of any of the 50 states uh, while he was munching away at that famous French laundry restaurant with the very lobbyists and medical professionals that drafted the mandates that they were violating. And it isn't just that. Uh, He had his own private own kids enjoying in-person private education. He exempted his own winery from the from the mandates. Uh, And we have no idea how many businesses uh, went bankrupt. We do know uh, that only about half of all the jobs in California have been recovered, as opposed to two-thirds of the average state. Uh, And uh, this guy is clueless. He's got to go. And a lot of people approached me, including Dennis Prager and people like Pastor Jack Hibbs and people like uh, my friend uh, and mentor, Lionel Chetwin, the longtime filmmaker. And they all said, come on, Larry, if not you, who, if not now, when? I've got real good name recognition in the state. I've been on every major market in the state from Sacramento down to San Diego. And I've been talking about these issues in my books, in my columns uh, for some 30 years. I'm a native Californian. My dad came here, Drew, in 1945, right after the war. Uh, He's from the Jim Crow South, like most black people. Uh, And he came here on a run when he was a Pullman porter on the trains before the war. And he was shocked. He was able to walk into a restaurant in the front door and get a meal. And so my dad kind of made a mental note that maybe someday after the war, uh, I will come to California. Pearl Harbor, my dad joins the Marines. I asked my dad one time why. He said two reasons. Uh, They go where the action is. And I love the uniforms. So he's stationed in Guam, <laughs> where he was in charge of cooking for the quote unquote colored soldiers, staff sergeant, gets out of the Army, uh, gets out of the uh, Marines, and goes back to Chattanooga, where he met and married my mom. I walked around uh, two or three days to get him a job as a short order cook, and he was told, We don't hire. N-. So he said, This is BS. I'm going to LA, get me a job as a cook. Walks around, and they told him, You don't have any references. My dad said, I need references to make ham and eggs. So they treated him the same way out in California. they were a little more genteel about it. He goes to an unemployment office, takes the first job he can get, 10 years cleaning toilets with a company called Nabisco Brand Bread, 10 years with another company called Barbara and Bread, both times cleaning toilets, cook for a family on the weekend, went to night school to get his GED to get additional education, and my father was able to save up enough money, so he had a stay-at-home wife, my mother. Uh, the youngest of us had a stay-at-home wife, uh, mother, until Dennis was in middle school. And my dad, believe it or not, saved his nickels and dime, Andrew, to buy a home that right now is valued at $600,000. Mm. I just checked below. Wonderful for us because it's still in the family. But anybody, anybody who tried to duplicate my dad's path an eighth-grade dropout, if he worked three jobs, could not do it because the cost of living is so hellacious because we've had an anti-growth ethos in this state for the last 30 or 40 years. And so uh, the average price of a home in California costs 150% more than the average price of a home outside of California. And uh, Leo Hanian, the real estate expert uh, economist from UCLA, tells me because of, of rules like, it's called CEQA, the California Quality Environmental Act, the average house in California costs 50% more than it otherwise would, but for these ridiculous uh, environmental mandates. You stick a, foo- a spoon in the dirt and somebody's going to file a lawsuit arguing that you have had a negative environmental impact. In preparing for this race, I talked to developers, I talked to contractors, I heard story after story after story. 20 years ago, Larry, I had a 2000 home development on the on the projects. I got sued. Uh, cut it down to a thousand. I got sued. I cut it down to 500. 25 years later, they approved a 200 development plot as opposed to a 2,000 development plot. That's why young people uh, like Ben Shapiro and others are leaving California, going to places like Tennessee and Texas and Florida. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I'm going to reverse that when I become governor.
0: Let, let me ask you something. The minute I heard you were doing this, the first thing that went through my head was he could win this thing. I mean, you really, you know, I listened to your show. Everybody listens to your show on the right. And you, you really know your stuff. You really know what you're doing. You're Obviously personable. Right. Are you prepared for, for this? I mean, I, I don't want you to be like the the dog that caught the car here. You know, I
3: mean, you're, you're, well, you know,
0: people people don't understand what L.A. looks like. I mean, it looks like Calcutta now. It looks like you know some some of the worst places. The homelessness is terrible. San Francisco used to be one of the most beautiful cities in the country. It's virtually unlivable. What are you going to do about the homeless?
3: You know, I can't do any worse job than these clowns right now. Uh, <laughs> Take take uh, take uh, Newsom. Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco. He was uh, lieutenant governor for eight years. He's been governor for two years. He's a disaster. And I know a, a pretty well-known governor who was pretty good and pretty well-known uh, president. His name was Ronald Reagan. He came out of Hollywood for crying out loud, uh, and he won, and he governed extremely effectively. It takes common sense and good judgment. It's not rocket science. The rise in homelessness is in part due to the fact that we're Purchasing homes for them, including very expensive homes uh, in Venice Beach. And a lot of people outside of California coming here, uh, you mean if I'm homeless, I'll be treated with compassion and I get a free home? And they're not doing anything about the underlying problem of why they're homeless in the first place. Pastor Jack Hibbs says, let us do it. Let the churches do it. We'll adopt a block. We'll adopt the street. Empower us. Give us the money, meaning not government, but have individuals donate money to the churches and let them do it. Some 10% or so, I'm told, Andrew, are people who are true schizophrenics, Uh, a danger to themselves or to others. I'm sorry, they literally have to be forcibly picked up off the street and housed for their own protection and for the protection of the other uh, homeless class. But the rest of them need to be treated. And we did have a stick that was removed by Proposition 47. A lot of people stealing money are stealing money to purchase um, drugs for their habit, and what Proposition 47 did is, we're going to make these people uh, no longer felons. They'll be com- they'll be committing misdemeanors. We'll give them tickets. And that's what that's what they're doing. And so now you find people going in, literally with calculators, making sure they don't steal more than 950, and they can do that every single day. Now, what's the incentive for somebody like that to get treatment if you don't have the threat that that person is going to go to jail? I've talked to Sheriff Alex Villanueva, he says we no longer have the tools to force these people to go into rehab because we can't threaten them with going to jail. This is ridiculous. We need to do something about this. And one of the reasons crime is going up, of course, is that we've demonized the police with this uh, systemic racism BS narrative. When, in fact, the studies show that the police are three times more hesitant and uh, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than a white suspect. Now, you're a cop. Most of much of police working, in fact, most of it is discretionary. You're driving around. You see something that looks bad. You get out of your car uh, and you investigate. Why do that when the odds are someone's going to pick up a smartphone, film you, and accuse you of, ga- of engaging in systemic racism? So a lot of cops are engaging what's called passive policing, not doing proactive policing. Bad guys know it. Crime goes up. And guess who are the primary people who are victimized? They're very black and brown people that people like Gavin Newsom and people on the left claim they care about. Can I say something about school choice? I went to Crenshaw High School. You know the movie Boys in the Hood? Yeah. Uh, I buried in the LA Times a few years ago, front page article. Only 3% of kids from my former high school were math proficient. I recently checked the latin- latest stats. 2% now are math proficient. Who sends their kid to a school where only 2% of the kids are math proficient and the school's a crip school, meaning run by the gangs? The reason I know that is because shortly after I graduated from Crenshaw, it became, the area became a gang area and ICE. Ice-T, I get my ice is confused, Ice-T, the rapper, cho- said he chose Crenshaw because he wanted to go to a crip school. By the way, speaking of Ice Ice Cube, Ice Cube raised by nuclear middle-class family, he did not go to his local government school. He voluntarily got on a bus and went to Taft High School in the Valley, which at the time was primarily white because he wanted a better education. Now, what does that tell you? Uh, twice as many L.A. U.S.D. teachers who have school-age kids have their own kids in private school compared to those households that don't have teachers. Now, this is the equivalent of opening up a restaurant, putting up a sign saying, come on in, just don't eat the food. The people that know the school system the best are the ones who don't put their own kids in it. One more step. There are 300,000 public school teachers in California. Guess how many were fired last year for incompetence, Drew?
0: I have no idea how many.
3: Two. Two. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I'm, told, I'm told by talking to experts, between 5 and 7% of them are incompetent, and they end up in the schools where the kids most need good schools. If they just didn't exist, the learning curve would go up. That's around 15,000 teachers that need to be fired. And when I become governor, I'm going to use my emergency powers the way Gavin Newsom has for the coronavirus mandate. And I'm going to get rid of these bad teachers in one fell swoop. Remember that crazy elementary school teacher uh, who was literally feeding kids cookies with laced with semen? You know how many years it took for them to get rid of this guy? And finally, he took a $40,000 buyout for him to leave. It takes almost a million dollars to get rid of an incompetent teacher. It is outrageous. 80% of the kids who are in public schools in the state of California are black and brown. 75% of black kids cannot read at state levels of proficiency. 50% of all kids cannot. It is absolutely outrageous. And what is Gavin Newsom doing about it? Not a damn thing because he's beholden to the teachers union. Remember, they didn't want the schools open. The teacher was still getting their money. And when parents black and brown and others began complaining, the head of the the largest affiliate of the California Teachers Association uh, in Los Angeles said, well, the move to have in school learning during the coronavirus pandemic is being led by white supremacists. Andrew, I'm a lot of things. Do I look like a freaking white supremacist <laughs> to you? <laughs> can you? Can
0: you answer this Don't question to me? Answer this, answer this...
3: That. Don't answer that. <laughs> well, <answer that. laughs> no, there we go. Every now and then, I'm saying.
0: <laughs> can you answer a question that really mystifies me? I, I lived in San Francisco way long, long time ago. It was a beautiful, beautiful city. L.A., the weather there, I mean, it's virtually paradise. Why do people put up with this? Why do they vote for a guy like George Gaston, Gascon, the uh, the D- new DA, the Soros-backed DA, who will not prosecute crime? Why do they allow their streets to become crime-ridden, dangerous, uh, you know, tent cities? What does it take, what will it take to convince them that Larry Elder is easily and far and away a better choice than a guy like Gavin Newsom?
3: I have a theory about that. Yeah. Uh, I have friends who live in Oregon. I have friends who live in Florida. I friends who live in Texas. Uh, and, as you know, many of these states are threatening to become increasingly more purple as people from California come there, right? Because the average Joe and Joe sick pack have no idea of the connection between the rising crime and stupid policies, the connection between the rising of, uh, cost of living and stupid policies, the connection between homelessness and stupid policy. They just know it's bad. They just know they can't get a house and they know I can go somewhere else and get one. They haven't put the two together not because they're stupid, they're working. They're not like you and me, they're not policy guys. They're 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 trying to put food on the table and trying to raise money to get their to get the DP to get a house. They haven't made the connection. And one of the things I think I can do in a way that maybe none of the others can is explain this to the average Californian. There is a reason for this. Drought is God-made, uh, but shortages are human-made. There's a reason for this. We have not prepared. We have not invested in our water infrastructure in any meaningful way since the 1970s. Uh, Bill Jones, the former Secretary of State in my opinion, drew the last true conservative who was elected statewide, third generation farmer. And he said, my parents, my my family are are some of the ones who did the infrastructure. Some of the facilities are named after us, are named Jones. And he said, this infrastructure has not been added to in any kind of significant way since the 1970s when the state was half the size. Now, how much common sense does it take to recognize that? I think I at least have that. So I'm looking forward to the challenge. I think I can do this. And when i have talking to a lot of uh, people, including the black media in Sacramento, I said, aren't you tired of this? Aren't you tired of the crime? Aren't you tired of the fact that blacks and browns are more likely to be victimized than anybody else? Aren't you tired of sending your kid to a school where only 2% are math proficient? Aren't you sick of it? Don't you recognize it doesn't have to be this way why can't the money follow the child rather than the other way around the guy that you guys have voted for are totally beholden to the teacher union they hate 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 charter schools let alone private schools why they lose the automatic membership dues that they normally get a teacher who goes to a, uh, a charter school uh, is not automatically enrolled into the union therefore the union does not get automatic dues and that's why they discourage Charter schools. They discourage homeschooling. They discourage private schools, while putting their own school-age kids in the very private schools that they discourage other parents from sending their kids to. It is outrageous, and that's one of the things I'm going to do something about, Drew.
0: Well, you know, there's a the, for people who don't live in California, there's a recall on on Gavin Newsom that that was difficult to put into action, but they are actually are going to have it. What do you have to accomplish now to to win? Okay. Do you have to be the the uh leader of all the candidates do you have to win a plurality what do you have to do to win
3: the first thing i have to do is get money from people so i I can run (laughs) elder.com elect elder.com is my website but you're right Uh, this is uh, this is real simple there are two things on the ballot do you want this man recalled who should replace him that's it If there's 50 percent plus one vote, he's recalled. And then whoever has the the highest number of votes to replace him wins. Mm. Uh, And uh, I have the highest name recognition of any of these people other than Caitlyn Jenner. And as I mentioned, I'm up and down the state. I'm extremely well known. Uh, I don't pretend to be a policy walk. I don't pretend to know as much about how Sacramento works as some of these other people do. Uh, And when I get elected, uh, they're going to get the first phone call because I'm going to need their expertise in my cabinet.
0: Okay, so so another mystery to me is why Republicans look at states like California and look at states like New York, where things are going so badly and things are falling apart so much and Republicans kind of stand down. They think, oh, no, we can't possibly win. As you say, there are super majorities uh, throughout uh, the throughout California, the Democrats. It's basically a one party state. Do you think the Republicans will put make an effort? Do you think they will back you or at least somebody uh, in trying to get rid of these guys?
3: I think I will. I think they will. I'm going to a big meeting tomorrow and the scuttlebutt is that they're going to uh, 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 support somebody else. They haven't heard me, haven't seen me. Mm. Wait until I lay out what I just now laid out to you in the way that I'm doing it with the passion, enthusiasm, uh, and my perspective as a native Californian. Um, I think a lot of people, Drew, are just demoralized. I talk to these developers I told you about, and one of them I called. I heard he was a very, very wealthy guy. And the largest individual uh, maximum contribution you give is 34200 You can't win without a lot of people maxing out. So I called this guy, and he didn't, never, didn't know who I was. So I told him briefly. And I told him some of my ideas. And he goes, well, you know, it's CEQA. it's it's uh, And I told him, one of the things, the first thing I'm going to do is he enact my emergency powers, and I'm going to suspend CEQA. So that builders will be encouraged to build. And all of a sudden, he, he sparked up. And I've had that kind of mood swing over and over and over again when I call these high-end people. They're just, ah, uh, ah. Uh, they've given up. And I said, aren't you tired of losing? Don't you want somebody like me from the hood uh, who was raised in, in Pico Union, a heavily Hispanic area? It still is, and, I, and my dad had his restaurant there for years and years and years. And when my dad left the restaurant, Drew, he'd walk out with his bag of cash, and these guys, some of them are gangbangers, are sitting on his car, my dad hands him the bag of cash. My dad opens the trunk. They hand him the back of the bag of the cash. He puts it in there and drives away. They were protecting him because we were on that block since 1950. And my dad, when he started the little cafe there, would give these little kids uh, ice cream for free. And they grew up and they remember it. Hmm. And so my dad had all this goodwill. Don't you want somebody from California who's born and raised here, who's seen the decline, who can turn this thing around? And all of a sudden they perk up. They're demoralized. We have not had a a person to win statewide in California, as I mentioned, true conservatives since Bill Jones, secretary of state. I don't count Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're demoralized. And some of the people who are independents and Democrats, many of them signed this Petition. to have this man recall. Two point two million people signed it. We only needed one point six. Around twenty five percent or so of the ones signing were independents and Democrats who voted for this guy just two years ago. They've had it. So I just don't think people have explained things in a way that the average person can get. And I don't think people have explained ideas and solutions that the average people can get because they've been too busy packing up, going to going to Tennessee and going to Florida.
0: I've I've only got a minute left. Br- very briefly, can you overcome? the bias of the press. It's such a powerful leftist force. Can you overcome that?
3: Uh, it is is—it uh, is a huge, huge force. Uh, I'm born and raised in L.A. The L.A. Times has never reviewed any of my half dozen books, even though two of them made the L.A. Times bestseller list. My movie Uncle Tom that came out Juneteenth last year made more money than all five of the movies that were nominated for Best Oscar Combined Documentary. I had a higher IMDb rating than any of them. LA Times did not review any of them. I just got trashed by a female uh, reporter in the LA Times recently. However, George Skelton, the dean of reporters, uh, LA Times, he said there is a path for elder to win. I was shocked because this guy is kind of jaded. He's almost 80 years old. He's seen it all, said it said it all, and he says elder can win. So I've turned these journalists around. I've asked them often before I even start the, the, the interview, When's the last time you voted for a Republican? Well, uh, I said, you think you're going to be fair to me. Well, and I said, we're off the record. Does that still count? And I and I've interviewed them, not not pushing them around. But I asked them a few questions and I think I've made them a little more. a Little more likely to be fair and yeah. i've been i've been impressed with some of the people that who've written articles about me in the last week or so where i thought at first they were going to be biased i had a little conversation with them before we start the interview and i think they're on guard to be a little more fair than they normally are so i'm not worried i think the average person uh, understands what's going on with crime, with homelessness, uh, with the arrogant way he slammed down this uh, uh, this uh, the state because of the coronavirus and the high cost of living. And I've got some ideas and I think I can make the case.
0: You know, Larry, I got to go. But before I do, I got to tell you that film Uncle Tom was absolutely fantastic. I meant to write you about it. I talked about it on the show. Just a great, great job. And the second thing I want to tell you is I hope you win this thing, buddy. I really do. I would love to see you become governor of California. It's great to see you
3: but thank you. Give a little love to Justin Malone. He directed the film and it was a Malone film. I just executive produced it, raised the money, had a small hand in writing it. So give a little love to Justin Malone.
0: Excellent job. Ed, good luck, buddy. Thank you. All right. That's you. Thank you. All right. That bittersweet time has arrived when you gather your familiar problems around you and bid them farewell because we're going to solve them all right here on the mailbag. Woo!
1: We will.
0: That was just depressing. I'm sorry. All right. This one This one is from Paul, Dearest Claven Ruler of the Multiverse. I don't want to correct you, but it's actually Claven Dearest Ruler of the Multiverse. Uh, is, last week, you announced that you have played a big part in a show about the Bible. Yes, this is a, a script I have written for a Bible, and Old Testament show that we're trying to raise money for. If you want to go to invest in K-O, C-A-Y-O dot TV, you can invest, but please read the specs because it's an investment. You can lose your money. Uh, so you want to know what you're getting into. Uh, But if you want to support this project, I'm doing about the Bible. So he says, Paul says, uh, I've also noticed that you have been spending more time discussing Christianity on your show. I was a Christian for 20 years, and I understand the positive influence Christianity has had on American values. But as someone who is no longer a Christian, I feel not only alienated by your talking about it, but it also makes your show less interesting to me. I'm wondering if you have any projects in the works that will be interesting and exciting to people like me who aren't looking for overtly Christian forms of entertainment. Thank you for the work that you do on your show. You are the best host at the Daily wire That's just an obvious truth. Uh, hashtag came for Ben, stayed for Clavin. Uh, you know, really interesting question, Paul, and I, I'm happy to get a chance to answer it. Yes, there are things that I write that don't have overtly uh, Christian ideas in them. I have a book that actually a, a book that is about, uh, that's a Christmas book, but it's not a religious book. It's a mystery story. Um, however, however, the reason I talk about God and a, specifically a Christian God is because nothing I say makes sense without him. Uh, the defense of your—and fr- and I'll go even further and really insult you here, Paul. Nothing you say makes sense without him either. Uh, the idea of freedom doesn't make sense without God. The idea of morality doesn't make sense without God. You cannot find a path to moral thought. You know, last week uh, there were some questions in the mailbag where I had pointed out why you can't uh, find a—, a path to moral objectivity without an idea of God. And people are saying, well, couldn't it just be, you know, that uh, our, our human feeling, our common sense? Well, no, because the question is, why would you do anything for anybody else if you did not feel that somehow that was written at a moral, what we call a supernatural level, a level above nature, uh, where your actions, your natural actions, like giving a beggar bread as opposed to torturing a child, those natural actions have a supernatural moral meaning. And in order to get to that place, and believe me, I tried for 49 years to think my way out of it. To get to that place, you have to believe in some sort of God who looks very much like the Christian God. So, I don't like to talk nonsense. I don't like to talk without making sense. And that's why I say the things I say, and that's why I return to these ideas. I know it's alienating to some people. I understand that it's alienating to some people. And I'm not telling anybody what they have to believe, and I'm not even preaching. I'm not even telling you that this is what you should believe. But what I do say, and I say this as an objective, logical truth, is that you cannot Create a moral system without a God, and you can't con- create a system in which your freedom is inviolable without a God. There's a reason that God is mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. I wrote in this uh, an article for American Mind uh, just this week called The Axiomatic God of Freedom, where I say, you know, the reason they said the, that it is self-evident truth that You are given rights by your creator. You are endowed with rights by your creator. Self-evident there doesn't mean it's obvious. If it were obvious, it wouldn't have taken thousands of years for people to notice them. Self-evident, it means that you cannot—it means axiomatic. You cannot get to freedom. You cannot get to rights without there having— There being a creator who endowed you with them. So that's why I do it. I talk like that because I want to make sense. I talk like that because if you don't make sense, if you don't understand where your ideas are founded, what is the basis, the self evident basis of your ideas, when people attack your ideas, when people attack your freedom, you won't be able to defend them. And I see this all the time. I saw it in the 60s when people started to attack freedom and started to attack Americanism and the people who were supporting Americanism and supporting beauty in the arts and supporting objective morality, didn't have any arguments for them because they'd given up the argument of God. They'd allowed people to take God out of the schools. They'd allowed people to make God an impolite thing to talk about. It's not nice to talk about God. It's impressive. You know, you have to, you have to be able to argue logically without God. There's some things you can't argue logically without. You have to have a basis, an illogical basis, even if you're a mathematician. Even math has an illogical basis, an unprovable basis. So does freedom, so does morality. And that's why I talk about it, because I want to make sense, and I think you should want to make sense too. Uh, and I, I can't let you off the hook for that, even though I know it does alienate people. From David Dear Clavin, master of the balding verse, wizard of wordery, and the dubbed sexy Gandalf. I'm a young man, nearing my mid 20s, and I have come seeking advice in matters of the heart for nearly a decade. I've been in love with a young woman, uh, we'll call her B. We dated for two years back when I was in high school and she left me after I moved to college, nearly half the state away because she couldn't deal with a long distance relationship. She's a little bit younger. Um, He's basically been a- unable to get over her. He says, Over the past two years, my prayers have drifted uh, towards, as my mind has been terming it, that these cursed feelings, which I cannot budge, be lifted from me, that I may follow God's guidance in finding a lasting relationship. I'm now at a point where I can honestly say that I harbor very little negative feelings toward what used to be. However, the more the negativity has loosened its grip on me, the more my love for B has welled up in my heart again. Uh, like every passing day, my feelings for B. Uh, gets stronger. I want to reach out to her and establish contact again, but at the same time, part of me thinks it's a terrible idea. I'm wondering what you make of this. God bless you from David. Um, You know, I don't believe this is about this woman at all, to be honest with you. Um, I don't think you're in love with her. I don't think you're in love with what used to be. Uh, I think that you I've suffered an ego blow, and you are not acting like a man and getting over it. Uh, When she left you, when she broke up with you, it was a a tremendous blow to your pride and to your ego, and you want to heal that pride by going back and getting it right this time. Uh, That's not the way to manhood. That's not the way to love. That's not the way into the future. The way into the future is to accept and feel the blow is to feel, oh yeah, I'm I'm in pain from this rejection, uh, and to th- thereby walk through that pain into a new future where you can go to someone else. I mean, you don't cling to a woman like this because you're like this who's already left you and who's been gone for 10 years because you love her, you do it because you love something about yourself that she, that you feel she injured. Uh, and I think that uh, that's a mistake, and I think you're making that mistake, and I think you're gonna have to let it go, which is, is tough. Um, Do I have time for one more? One more. From Doug uh, Lord Claven. I'm seeking advice. I feel that my work and consequently my life has little to no meaning. I have a beautiful wife, a seven-month-old daughter, a dog, and a mortgage. I live in an area that is great in a relatively good school district. My life looks good, but I feel all the work I do has little meaning. I'm in sales. I sell things to people they generally have to save for, but that doesn't give me any satisfaction. They're luxury goods. Uh, I would like to get involved in public life or something related to it. However, I don't have a college degree and get passed over relatively quickly because of that fact. I have many skills and I'm well-read unless reading Knowles's book takes books away from my account. It does detract, but it doesn't detract all of them. It's not that good. Uh, I'm not sure where to take my life. I'm eager and willing to work. I would just like the opportunity to do work that has meaning. Yeah, and I think you should. First of all, I think you should pause for a minute and be grateful for your beautiful wife and your beautiful daughter. You sent a picture of your daughter, and she is beautiful, uh, for your dog and your mortgage. All those things are things to be grateful for. You built them. Uh, you built Created that life for yourself with their help. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. And that should have meaning in and of itself. And it's possible that you should be using this time to develop the skills you need to have a more meaningful life. It's possible you need to stay with your job for now and uh, work to support your family, but that in staying with your job, you are giving yourself time to get ready. Maybe to get a a higher degree, but maybe you don't need a higher degree. Maybe you just need to learn. Uh, the things that you need to learn to get the kind of work that you want. First, you have to decide what that work is. Then you have to decide what the qualifications you need to do that work Uh, are. And then you have to get those qualifications and that may take you some time, but you should definitely commit yourself to that. You want your life to have meaning. You want your work to have meaning. Guys are all about their work and you should want your work to have meaning in your life. So so get to work, Uh, work a little harder, stay up a little later, get a little less sleep and do the things you need to do to prepare for a life with more meaning. There's nothing unreasonable about what you're saying. You just have to do the work that that you need to do to get there Uh, and good luck. I'm going to stop there. Uh, so, none of this really matters because it's the Clavenless week is upon you, and you will probably be destroyed simply by your own despair. The wailing, the gnashing of teeth, the darkness, the flames. It's, oh, my, I don't even like to think about it. However, if you survive, if you crawl your way through this apocalyptic disaster to next Friday, I will be here with The Andrew Claven Show, and I will still be Andrew Claven. <laughs> Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Mathis Glover. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production Manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead Audio Mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production Coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our Production Assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire Production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021.
1: The chairman of the Joint Chiefs compares Trump supporters to Nazis. New reports out of Georgia raise serious questions about the
0: 2020 presidential election, and a huge swath of Americans wants to secede. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.